grateful for the opportunity to, to preach from God's word this morning. I do see some, some new faces here, so let me just begin by introducing myself. My name is Ryan. I have the blessing of not only serving as one of the pastors here at Awaken, but also of preaching from God's word this morning as we continue in our sermon series called Masterpiece in Progress. Masterpiece in Progress. For those of you who weren't here with us last week as we kicked off this series, what it's going to be is an eight-week journey through the book of Ephesians. We're going to go pretty much verse by verse to unpack this incredible book. And last week I shared how uh, this book of Ephesians, it really gives us sort of a Grand Canyon view of the gospel. I don't know how many of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon, but when you stand on any of those vistas, you can really see quite a ways. Right? You can see both its, its width and its depth. And I really believe that's what Ephesians does. It allows us to see both the, the depth and the width of the gospel. Right? Both what it means for us for eternity, off in the distance, but also the depth of what that means for us here and now. And the truth that we're going to hone in on this morning, it comes from perhaps uh, the most famous passage in the book of Ephesians. It's actually the passage where this series gets its name, where Paul refers to those who follow Christ as being his masterpiece, or his craftsmanship, or his, his workmanship. And I got to be honest with you all that as easy as that imagery is to sort of understand, I think the truth in that statement is a whole lot harder for me to grasp. Okay, I, I'm not sure if I'm the only one who, who feels this way, but if I'm being honest, when I look at my life, I often feel like I look a little bit more like a mess than I do a masterpiece. Anybody with me on that one? A little bit more of a mess than a masterpiece? See, on the surface, right, most of our lives look okay. We can do a pretty good job on social media or whatever, like making people feel like they know who we are. But deep down, we know who we are. Deep down, I know who I am. I know the thoughts that run through my mind. I know how I try and, and, and fail daily to be a, a good husband, a good father, a good pastor, a, a faithful friend. I know I'm not alone in the fact that I, I see my, my flaws. And so it's hard to sort of look past that mess that I am to believe that I am a, a masterpiece in progress. See, when I think of a masterpiece, the image that comes to mind immediately for me is that of Michelangelo's David. I'm sure we're all familiar with, with Michelangelo's David. I'm not sure how many of you, though, have, have actually been to see this masterpiece. I was actually lucky enough uh, when I was in college to study abroad in Florence for six months, and so I got to see this masterpiece actually several times. And one thing I can tell you is that pictures simply do not do this thing justice. I mean, it is phenomenal. It's also a lot bigger than you would expect. I think I was expecting maybe like 8 or 10 feet tall. It's 17 feet tall, 24 feet if you include its base. And so this is a, a massive and breathtaking work of art. Artists both then and, and even now still consider it to be the most perfect piece of art. Even one of Michelangelo's contemporaries, when, when he saw it, he basically said, hey, you don't need to look at any other work of art. Like, this is it. This is the pinnacle of perfection. And so it should come as no surprise then that about two million people every year file through this small museum in Florence just to get a glimpse of this masterpiece. However, despite how enormous and how beautiful this masterpiece is, what's always captured my attention is not the David, but actually the statues that stand in its shadow. So you might not know this if you've never been to, to this museum, but, but the statue of the David, actually in the hallway that leads up to it, there are many of Michelangelo's unfinished pieces. And in each of my visits there, it's these statues that capture my attention. 
It's these ones that I can't help but just, just stand in front of and, and just want to take in. I've got a picture here of, a, of an unfinished sculpture of St. Matthew. It's one of those unfinished statues on your way to see the finished masterpiece. And you can see here how you know, this was going to be something beautiful. You can start to see the beginnings of it, but for whatever reason, Michelangelo, he never finished this sculpture. It was never completed. And now I don't know about you, but, but I can connect a whole lot more with this guy than I can with the David. Right? It's, it's raw. It's got some blemishes. It needs a whole lot of work. I can relate to that. But the question is, how do we go from this to the David? How do we go from one to the other? How can we go from being the mess that we feel like to the masterpiece that God created each of us to be? Because the reality is none of us want to stay stuck in that stone, do we? So how do we go from one to the other? Well, I believe the answer actually lies in those sculptures. Because just like the David didn't carve itself, we are unable on our own to bring about that transformation in our own lives. It doesn't matter how hard we work or how much we try, we are unable on our own to bring out that beauty that God has placed inside of us. So the only way that we can be transformed then is to place our lives into the hands of the Creator and to allow us to allow him to, to chisel us by his grace into the masterpiece that he created us to be. The only way for us to become the masterpiece that he created us to be is to put our life in his hands and allow him to chisel us by his grace into the masterpiece that he created us to be. That's the only way. And so my prayer for us, family, for you, for this time here this morning is that you wouldn't just be woken up to the free gift of God's grace, but that you would open yourself up to be transformed by it. That's where we're headed this morning. But before we go any further, let's pause just one more time. Ask the Lord to guide us in the reading of his word this morning. Father, we thank you. We thank you again that you are full of mercy, that you are full of grace. Thank you that you would lovingly take our mess. Lord, want to turn it into your masterpiece. Pray, Lord, that you would continue to reveal the life-altering truths of your grace this morning. Would you give us the courage to walk in it? We love you, Lord. Pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Man, well, last week I shared with you a little bit about Paul's purpose in writing this letter to the Ephesians. And if you remember, I said he had a dual purpose, right? One was to reshape the perspective of the Ephesians, to reshape their perspective to a more heavenly perspective. The other was to reorient their focus towards God's purpose for their lives. So it was to both reinforce the things that were already true of them in Christ but also to show them that, hey, your eternal salvation, it has an impact on your present reality. And there's a reason why Paul needed to write these things. It's the same reason why we need to still read them today. It's because as human beings, as Christians living in 2024, we can tend to get caught up in in one or the other, right? We can either get caught up in, in the age that is to come so much so that we lose sight of what God's given us to do here and now, or on the flip side, We can get so caught up in what we have to do here and now that we lose sight of eternity. But Paul is saying, hey, you've got to hold both of those things in tension because the reality is, family, we are living between the ages. We are living between the ages. And this is something that is crucial for us to understand. Not just for our study in Ephesians, but again, as followers of Jesus living here in 2024, that we are living between the ages. And so I want to help you to understand this just a little bit before we dive into today's passage. 
Okay, I want to start with talking about how God's people viewed things before Jesus. See, before Jesus came, uh, God's people, they viewed things as just being, there being a, a present age and an age to come. Right? There was both the present age, the age that they were living in, and the age to come where God would return, he would make all things new, and he would live with his people in peaceful unity. However, when Jesus came, he brought into being an age that was somehow between the ages. Something that we refer to here as the now and the not yet. Right, where God's plan of redemption and restoration, it has begun, but it's yet to be completed. Are you all with me so far? So Paul writes with this, this dual purpose because in a lot of ways, we're, we're living in a dual reality. Right? We're living between the ages. I know this is a, a bit of a hard concept to wrap our minds around, and so I want to share just a really brief illustration that actually comes from one of my seminary professors. He referred to this as sort of uh, similar to what we see as springtime. Okay, we know right now we are not in the midst of spring. It is frigid cold outside, but there is a date on the calendar when spring starts. Every year it comes. Spring starts on a specific date. But on that date, March 20th, does the grass all of a sudden turn green? Right, do flowers just you sprout and bloom overnight? No. The, you know, the, the, the weather warms up, the, the winds start to come, things start to bloom as the season is slowly and fully arriving. This is like the age that we are living in. Right, the now and the not yet, where spring has come, but it's yet to be fully realized. Where we have been, been, been made new, been transformed by the blood of Jesus, but yet we are still these masterpieces in progress. And so Paul's purpose in writing this letter is to say, hey, this is what God is doing, and this is what, what you're called to do in between the ages. And Paul's going to point out for us an important truth as we turn our attention now to chapter 2. It's going to point our attention to the necessity of grace in all of this, to the necessity of grace. I'm going to ask you, if you would, if you brought your Bibles or Bible apps, go ahead and get those out, open them with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 1 this morning. Paul says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what we see here is Paul really giving us an overview of our spiritual journey of faith. He says, this is your spiritual state before grace. This is who you are now by grace. And this is how you are to now live beneath grace. Three times he emphasizes grace. And I believe he does so because he wants us to see that grace isn't just the means by which we are saved. It's also the means by which we are sculpted. 
Right? He wants us to see that no matter where we find ourselves. Whether you look more like that statue of St. Matthew or whether you feel a little bit more like the David, the reality is we all need that grace. And so what I'd like to do this morning as we unpack this passage is to give you a, a, a firmer grip on that grace this morning. I want to do so by answering three important questions. So if you're taking notes this morning, now would be a good time to start. If you haven't already, that first question is this. Why do we need grace? Why do we need grace? Well, I'm answering that question, it's kind of like asking, why do we need oxygen? Right? But unfortunately, the reality is it's not as obvious to those who are living in sin. I think that's why Paul is pretty direct and to the point here. Notice that Paul doesn't say that, you know, hey, you know you, you're like, kind of like you're sick and in need of a doctor. Right? He doesn't say that it's kind of like you just wandered off the path and you need a little bit of redirection. No, he says, before Jesus, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He says you were dead. And I know that feels, at first, like aggressive language. Right? We live in kind of a non-confrontational culture and we're like, whoa, man, like, I don't know that I was that bad. But it's true. It's true, and it should wake us up to the severity of our situation. The challenge is, right, we're not used to hearing this kind of truth, right? And if we actually listen to the voice of the world, what we'll hear from the world is, hey, you know what? You're, you're good enough, right? You do a lot, right? You, you give to your church. I saw you tip your barista the other day, right? You even signed up for that meal train for that, that family that just had a baby, right? You're, you're good enough. You're good enough. You deserve a happy and healthy life. You deserve, you deserve heaven. The world will also tell us that we're strong enough Right, that we can overcome all these challenges, all these obstacles on our own, that we don't need anybody else. We are good enough. We are strong enough on our own. You open up Paul's letter to the Romans, we read something different. Right? We read the truth. Romans 3.23 tells us that we have all sinned, that we have all fallen short, that none of us are good enough. Right? And then Romans 6.23 tells us what the penalty for those sins are. Right? The wages of sin are what? It's death. So before grace, we were dead. And y'all, last I checked, dead things cannot bring themselves back to life. Right? Dead things are powerless. That is legitimately one of the defining characteristics of a dead thing. <laughs> it doesn't have an ability to change its deadness. And I think that's why Paul, he hammers home here in these first few verses, our deadness. But here's the thing, right? He, he actually hammers home our deadness by talking about our activity. And it's a little weird, right? Like, I thought we were dead, and you talk about all these things that we're doing. What he's pointing out, family, is the reality, which is that before Jesus, we were all essentially spiritual zombies. We were spiritual zombies. That's why he calls out that before grace, we were stuck in a cycle of sin. We're stuck in a cycle of sin. He says, these are the ways in which you once walked. And he's not talking about like a literal path that we, we walk down. He's talking about Hey, you ordered your life around sin. I want to help you to, to understand this, this, this imagery that, that Paul's trying to get us to, to understand here. Okay, so I want you to think of your morning routine. Okay, whether you're getting ready for work or for school, whatever it is you're trying to do, my guess is you've got a, an order in which you do things, right? And that even if you're half asleep, you can probably get through those things to be able to get out the door. Right? So they've sort of become programmed in you. What Paul is saying is that before grace, our everyday routine was to walk down this path of sin. That even if we're half asleep, right, we would just sort of, we'd just sort of like zombie walk our way, right, like through this. Like, I don't know why zombies walk all like, like that. Maybe they don't, I don't know. But, 
you get the picture, right? We just sort of go through the motions. Even following just the one in front of you. Zombies are always in packs too. Isn't that weird? <laughs> Anyways. The point is, right, when, when we're living in that state, we're just sort of mindlessly repeating that cycle over and over again. And it's not just this routine that we use to get ready. It's, it's the way we order our very lives. I hate calling out social media, but the fact is we order our lives around our phones. We order our lives around these distractions. Then we wonder why we can't get unstuck from that sin. This is why we're passionate here at Awaken about calling people to live wide awake. Because we know what will happen to those who spiritually sleepwalk their way through life. Slowly but surely, you will become more and more separated, eventually eternally separated from God. That's why people need to be reminded of the truth. That's right, so what C.S. Lewis talks about in the screw tape letters, right? That the safest route to hell, it's the gradual one. It's the one that lulls you to sleep, gets you stuck in that cycle until that sin eventually destroys you. So the question, family, isn't if you need grace. It's if you see the need for that grace. Or if you've been just lulled to sleep. Maybe for some of you, you've been led to believe that, that you're already a masterpiece. Leads me to my, my second truth I want to call out that Paul points to here. That we weren't just stuck in a cycle of sin. We were also susceptible to the deception of a very real enemy. We were susceptible to the deception of a very real enemy. See, it's not just the way that the world is, is ordered that keeps us stuck in that sin cycle. It's also the desire of our enemy to destroy us. And while the enemy may not have control over our lives, he will do everything he's got to do to get us back into that spiritually sleepwalking state. And here's the thing, I know that we don't really like to talk about this today, right? that this whole spiritual realm thing makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. But family, we need to wake up to the fact that we are not just facing an evil world, we're not just facing our own sinful nature. We need to understand that there are spiritual forces at play. That prince of darkness is not just a saying. Yeah, their prince of darkness is actively working against us. That may make you uncomfortable to hear, but it is a reality. It's a reality that Paul speaks to plainly here, and it's a reality that is still true for us today. That's why Paul is going to say towards the end of his letter to the Ephesians that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the, the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is real family. And part of living wide awake is staying alert to the fact that we have a real enemy. We have an adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's not on your Hobby Lobby signs, but it's just as true as the ones that are. I dare one of you to put that up in your house, right? That would be pretty gnarly to see. But don't discount the ability of our enemy to deceive you. Do not discount the ability of our enemy to deceive you. And also, don't deflect your responsibility in it either. That's the third truth we see here. Third thing that Paul calls out is that before grace, we were stuck in that cycle of sin. We were susceptible to the deception of our enemy. And then lastly, that we were stubborn in our resistance towards God. What he's saying is, hey, we can't just play the victim card. Right? We can't just say, oh, it's this sinful world we live in or it's, it's the enemy. No, you made a decision. Right? You willingly chose to pursue the desires of your flesh. You willingly chose to put other things before God, before grace, of course. You willingly chose those things. 
And see, for the Ephesians, what they would do is they would go to any number of the, the dozens of temples, the physical temples, to worship their false gods. Nowadays, we've just sort of removed the middleman from that. Now we just worship what their gods represented. Talking sex, money, power, knowledge, beauty, health, all those things. Those were gods they worshiped in the physical temples. We just worship them in other ways. So why do we need grace? Before grace, we were dead. We were stuck in that cycle of sin. We were susceptible to the deception of the enemy. We were stubborn in our resistance towards God. But Paul says these things were true of you. Past tense. Before grace. Meaning once God gets a hold of you, once he starts chiseling you into his masterpiece, these things are no longer true of you. And family, in order for us to understand both why and how that is the case, we've got to start understanding what grace really is. Truly believe one of the things that's plaguing the American Christian church is that we have shortchanged our understanding of grace. So I want to take a little bit of time to unpack what this word actually means. That's our second question this morning for those of you taking notes, is what is grace? What is grace? Before I give you... uh, what I believe grace is, let's go back to God's word and be reminded of it. Let's look at verses four through nine again. Paul says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So what is grace? Grace is what saves us, right? Grace is how God rescues us and brings us from death to life. In this passage, it highlights a few important truths that I I believe we tend to either ignore or or somehow we never even came to understand these truths about grace. Again, I think we have such a limited view of grace. So let me help you understand a few important things I believe we need to know about grace. First, grace is an interruption. Grace is an interruption. See, our English translations, they don't capture this, but if you look at uh, this passage in the original Greek, what you'd find is that the first seven verses are all one sentence. The first seven verses are all one sentence. And so our translations, they have a period after verse three. But God never meant for our sinful state to end in a period. Let me say that again. God never meant for our sinful state to end with a period. He never meant for death to get the final word. That's why he sent Jesus to rescue us out of that death and to give us new life. And you'll notice what comes in verse 4 where, there, where there's a period in our translation. There's no period in the original Greek. Why? Because God came to interrupt death. Hallelujah. Verse 4 begins with an interruption, family, but God. It says, but God. Did you know that you could tell the entire story of the gospel with just those two words? But God. Did you know that you could tell the entire story of God's redemption plan with those two words? going all the way back to Adam and Eve, who chose disobedience, but God. Page by page, passage by passage, go all the way through scripture and you will see grace after grace. You will see God interrupting sin. You'll see him interrupting oppression, interrupting famine. 
to bring hope, to bring healing, to bring freedom, to bring life. Family, the truth that I want you to know is that God still interrupts us with his grace. God still interrupts us with his grace. So you might be here this morning feeling like you are drowning in the chaos of life. But God, but God is here to interrupt you with his grace. You might be here with a marriage that is in shambles, but God is here to interrupt you with his grace. You might have walked through those doors carrying the weight of secret sin, a weight that maybe you've been carrying for years, but God is here to interrupt you with his grace. Listen, family. I mean, we could just stop right here. I'm not going to, but we could. Because I believe God is here to interrupt you with his grace this morning. I believe God's here to interrupt you with his grace, and all you need to do is to be open to that interruption. All you need to do is be willing to say, all right, God, here's my mess. Interrupt me, take it. Form me into your masterpiece. Grace is an interruption. And since it's an interruption, it tells us something about it, right? That grace is not of our own doing. It's not of our own doing because grace is a free gift. That's the second truth I want to look at this morning. That grace is a free gift. I know the words free gift might sound a little bit redundant to you, but I think it's necessary. Okay, because in today's day and age, and probably since the beginning of time, every gift that's ever been given actually comes with strings attached. Okay? I know none of you are Mother Teresa, right? So we can, let's just be honest here. Every gift that's ever been given either is given because uh, somebody did something to deserve it, uh, because you want something out of it, or, or you know, maybe they gave you something, right? So you're just returning the favor. But God's grace is the only truly free gift because it's given not as a result of anything we've ever done or ever could do. Right? Notice in verse 5, Paul says, when we receive this gift, while we were dead in our trespasses, Meaning there's nothing we did to deserve it. There's nothing you could do, can do, ever will do to deserve this. Right? Grace is given to you simply because of who God is. I love this quote from St. Augustine. He's one of the early church fathers and he said this, Grace does not find men fit for salvation. It makes them so. Grace does not find men fit for salvation. It makes them so. In other words, family, dead things can't bring themselves back to life. Masterpieces can't carve themselves. That is the work of the free gift of grace in our lives. And what that gift does, family, is it unites us with Christ in power. It's the third truth I want us to, to focus on. That grace is what unites us with Christ in power. And I honestly believe this is the most overlooked and perhaps the most important aspect of grace. See, because we think that grace is just about forgiveness. And that is a huge part of grace, but it's not the only part of grace. Because it's by grace that we have been raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And I know that even when I said that, your mind just kind of glossed over, right? We can't comprehend what that really means. But let me say it again, a little slower. And I want you to actually think about what this means. By grace, you have been raised up. By grace, you are seated with Christ in heavenly places. What this means, family, is that because Christ has conquered over sin and over death, because he has conquered over the things that, that used to control you, and because you are seated with him in power, that means that you have been given the same power that he has. That means that you have been given the power to go and sin no more. You are no longer subject to the death and to the deception and to the depravity of the world because the power of Christ it now lives inside of you. 
This is what Pastor John Piper says. He says, grace is not simply leniency when we have sinned. Grace is the enabling gift of God not to sin. Grace is power, not just pardon. So if you're wondering why you can't break that cycle of sin in your life, it's not because you lack forgiveness. It's because you've yet to experience or to embrace or to exercise the power that's been given to you in Christ. Grace is what unites us with Christ. And it's what gives you the power to sin no more. Now, I want to be clear here. That doesn't mean you're not ever going to sin again. What I'm saying is that you have the power to resist. You have the power within you to say no. And the truth is, family, that is a muscle that most of us don't even know we can flex. We just give ourselves over to sin. I'm I'm a sinner. I'll ask God for forgiveness later. No, you have the power to resist it right here and right now. And what happens when you understand grace this way, family, as the necessary interruption that it is, as the free gift that it is, and as being what unites you with Christ in power, is that you can begin to understand the difference that it makes in your life. It's the last thing I want to point to, the the third and final question as I invite the worship team back up, is what difference does grace make? What difference does grace make? Paul gives us a glimpse in verse 10 when he says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what difference does grace make? Well, it makes all the difference. It changes how we see the world and it changes our place in it. I'm not sure if you caught this or not, but if you look back in verse 7, you'll see that Paul actually points to the purpose of our rescue. You'll see that he shows us what the, the end result is for having received all of this grace. He says, so that we might see the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness in us towards Christ Jesus. In other words, it's so that we might be restored to the existence that God originally intended for us. So that we might be restored to the original existence God intended for us, where where we experience an ever-increasing joy in Him and where He eternally delights in us. Family, this is why we're living between the ages. This is why we are masterpieces in progress. It's because God, by His grace, He wants to use us to restore his creation. He wants to use us as vessels of his grace to bring heaven here. That's why Paul says, hey, you're not saved by good works, but you are saved for good works. Right? That God has given us a place, he's given us a purpose, and he's given us his power to accomplish his plan. And Paul tells us what's required of us. It's just one thing. It's faith. It's as simple as that. That we would just trust him to do what we can't do. You know, like Pastor Ryan, that, that, that sounds too easy. Yeah, it kind of is. <laughs> That's the point. And yet most of us, we still feel more like a mess than a masterpiece. It's because we're trying to do it on our own. Rather than just handing over our mess, trusting in faith that God will do what he says he will do. You know, the great Michelangelo, carved the David, he once said that every block of stone has a statue inside of it and the task of the sculptor is simply to discover it and to set it free. That may be true about these sculptures, but it's not true about you. There's no discovery God needs to do because he placed that masterpiece inside of you. And if you allow him to, he will chisel by his grace 
until you are the masterpiece that he created you to be. So my final question for you this morning, family, is how are you going to respond to this grace? How are you going to respond to this grace? See, I know there are some of you here this morning who have yet to receive it. Truth is, maybe you've been walking through those doors for some time. Maybe you've been in church your entire life. Maybe you're just waking up to the fact that you've been spiritually sleepwalking. If that's you, I'm going to pray here in a minute. I would just encourage you, would you just pray a simple prayer? Would you say, Lord, here's, here's my mess. I don't want to be a mess anymore. I want to be the masterpiece you created me to be. Would you hand that over to him? Would you surrender your life to him and allow him to chisel you by his grace? I know there are others of you here this morning. Maybe you've received this grace, but you're not walking in it. Maybe you've been given this power, but you've yet to wield it. If that's you today, I want to invite you. Would you take this response time? Would you invite God to interrupt you with his grace? Would you invite him to use you, to fill you with his power, so you might break those chains, those things that have been holding you down? I don't know if it's, if it's insecurity. I don't know if it's anxiety. I don't know if it's regret, whatever it might be. And God has given you the power by his Holy Spirit to overcome and to break those chains. Would you invite him to interrupt you with his grace this morning? Would you ask him to do the things that only he can do? Would you ask him to turn your mess into a masterpiece?